0: Hey, great to have you join us again this evening. Yeah. And uh, it is always a privilege and, and an honour just to come together and to meet with you, albeit uh, virtually, and uh, it is still great to have to be with you here. Thank you so much for joining in.
1: Yeah, we, it really is a privilege to uh, just to be part of each other's lives at this time. And um, we're so grateful that we have um, media platforms that we can stay connected as a as a church family and as a body of believers wherever you are from tonight if you are whether you're from Hawkes Bay or you're from somewhere else in New Zealand or maybe you're tuning in from Australia or the Middle East or wherever it is America or um, United Kingdom but we want to say welcome tonight we're so glad that you are with us and we know tonight that you're going to be so impacted yeah. by our guest speaker tonight that you your life will be very challenged. Uh, by his message
0: tonight and so tonight we have uh, pastor Shane willard and uh, he was supposed to be here with us in person but obviously he can't um, but nonetheless what he brings to us today is just going to be very very powerful and uh, Shane is a great friend of ours yes, we he love is. him we love him a lot he's been a great blessing to us he's he's the words uh, the ministry he's brought it's really touched our heart and, and transformed us and um, I encourage you over, over mm-hmm. this time not to just listen with your mind yeah. uh, and just get some information, that sounds cool, but allow the Word of God to come into your heart. And so it's really important that we do that because otherwise we can just listen. But the Bible uh, often speaks about giving us an ear to hear. So now am not Computer. just hearing without just the ease, these ears uh, and then forgetting about what's even been said, but listen with the ear of your heart listen to the ear of your spirit because in there you'll feel the holy spirit start to speak to you yeah and, and 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 that's where we get transformation the hebrew culture was largely a um largely a culture of of the word and of the ear in other words um they received by by listening so i encourage you today is to listen with your heart listen with your spirit And uh, let's welcome Pastor Shane Willard as he comes to minister tonight.
1: Fantastic. We bless you tonight. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday, 10am. Pastor David, will be bringing the message. Yes. And uh, next week we have a whole lot of guest ministers coming on as well at 8pm each weekday night. And so uh, we do. We really want to bless you. We want to bless your households. We're praying for you, right? Yes. We're praying for you every day. We're praying for our families. And we can't wait to be back together again really soon. So why don't you uh, grab something to take notes on because you'll want to with this message from Pastor Shane. It's not too late to share it out. So start putting shares out there for this message. Uh, Pastor Shane, we honor you tonight. We thank you for your words into our lives over many, many years consistently, consistently. Bring in the Word of God to uh, yes. shape us and to challenge us. Amen?
2: Amen. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. It's so good to be here with you and coming into your homes. I get the opportunity to open the Bible today, and I take that very seriously, and I love it. Um, anytime you look at a scripture, you want to ask yourself at least two questions. One, uh, what happened? And then two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And I want to look at one of the meanings of the cross and resurrection. Um, If the cross and resurrection are ever relegated to bullet points on a pamphlet, like this is what we believe, I think that that's a cheaper version of what could be more profound, that the cross and resurrection is not meant to be something that we simply believe in, rather something we know and something that fundamentally shifts the filter by which we see our whole world. And so I I wanna do so by looking at one of the things that Paul wrote about what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross, what it meant for our world, How do we live tomorrow? And so this is in Colossians chapter two. Here's what he says. Once when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive with Christ. So obviously one of the meanings of the cross and resurrection is this death or life thing. He forgave us all our sins. So there is this sense of there is this forgiveness part of the cross And and resurrection. And of course, in other places in the New Testament, it demands that the forgiveness part was true before the foundation of the world. And the cross was physically manifesting what God had always done since before the foundation of the world. So you have this movement from death to life. You've got this forgiveness of sins, the cancellation of debt. Here's what it says. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. So there's that part. Which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So what I want to talk to you about for today is I want to talk to you about the disarming of the powers and authorities, the public spectacle, the triumphing over them by the cross. And I want to do so by not robbing the cross of its other meanings. Does it have a forgiveness of sin meaning? Yes, it, oh, yes, it does. Does it show us what God had accomplished before the foundation of the world? Yes, it does. It absolutely does. Does it cancel our legal indebt- indebtedness? Absolutely. absolutely. Does it move us from death to life? Yes, because how do you conquer death? Well, you die, and, 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 then, you, and, then, and then you rise again. That there, that there is a cross, and there's an exaltation. There's a death, and there's a life. There's what we want, and then there's the struggle to get to what we want. And so, so what you see in Jesus is really something unique, but not new. This is how the world works, the way you conquer death is by entering into it and bringing life. This is what God has been up to since before the foundation of the world. You look at Genesis 1. He didn't shy away from disorder. He engaged it to bring order. He didn't shy away from chaos. He engages it to bring new creation. He engages the darkness to bring light. And so I want to talk to you about one part, one part today of the cross and resurrection that I'm not sure gets enough playtime. Part, part of the problem is, is how, the world, how the word salvation gets thrown around. So, so we throw the word salvation around like, like willing, like, oh, are they saved? Am I saved? And, and, and sometimes we relegate salvation to us and them, in and out, right and wrong. But, but actually, when, when you look at Scripture, salvation is used, it, to my knowledge and by my research, at least seven different ways. And I don't want to cheapen the other uses, but in one session, you got to focus on one. And so I want to I focus on the use of the word salvation that has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins. It has nothing to do with going to heaven when you die. It has nothing to do with the afterlife at all. It has to do with God's intent to rescue us from things that oppress us here, now, today. Now, the other uses of salvation, just as valid. And it's used that way throughout scripture. Salvation is used to describe healing. It's used to describe deliverance from something that oppresses us. It's, it's also used to, to describe a, a, a state of where indebtedness has been forgiven. It, it's used to describe all of these things. And so In Colossians, Paul says that one of the meanings of the cross was the being set free by the disarming of the power and authorities. Now, this is vaguely familiar um, all the way back in Exodus 3. As far as I know, this is one of the first uses of the idea of salvation in the whole Bible. This is Exodus 3, verse 7. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So the context here is about misery, suffering, oppression. And I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. Once again, misery, suffering, slave drivers. So I'm going to come down and rescue them. Now, the word rescue there is the same word that gets translated to other times salvation. You could easily say, I'm going to come down and save them. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to rescue them. So, so the context here is not the forgiveness of sins. As much as it is the, the freedom from oppression. The setting free from the suffering. It's, it's somebody or something is doing something to us, and God is not happy with what it's doing to us, so he is going to rescue us from it. I'm going to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a better, good, and spacious land. Now, this has allusions that go back all the way to Genesis chapter 2. So, Early on in the biblical narrative, there is four rivers that come out of Eden. And it's written about this way. There was a river watering the garden, and it flowed from Eden. And from there, it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon, and it winded through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold is perfect. Now, this is so packed full of metaphor and literary devices that we have to unpack it. Just the basic thing going on here. There's a river called Pishon. Now, the word Pishon is the word hope. It actually has the pictures in, in, the, in, in the hieroglyph of, of uh, 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 something that, that is dormant that suddenly burst forth with life. Like you thought it was dead, but now it's bursting forth with life. It's like a dormant volcano. It's suddenly rumbling again. It's, it's this sort of thing. It's, it's very reminiscent to the cross and resurrection, that the cross is a part of the story and it looks dead but there's a resurrection coming. But the word for this would be hope, would be hope. So there's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of Havila. Now, Havila just means suffering. So if an ancient person was reading this, here's what they would read. There's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. In other words, if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to find it. That that to every crux there is an exaltation. To every struggle there is a victory. To every that 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 the victory is not the, the only part of the story. The struggle is also part of the story. And the meaningfulness in life is often interpreted from the struggle, not the victory itself, not just getting to the end of the story. The idea is, is when we look at the cross and resurrection, it shows us that even when we're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. Even when you're in a place of doubt, there's hope flowing through that. In in a river of, even if you're in a place of uncertainty, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. And that's what you find early in the story. It's what you find in the middle story. It's what you find in the story of Christ, in the story of Paul, and ultimately our stories. And, And then it says this, that the river had gold in it, and the gold was perfect. Now there's some things going on here. For, for those of you who don't know, the, the ancient Hebrew was written in hieroglyphs. They learned to write in Egypt. So every Hebrew letter is a picture. So every Hebrew word is a comic strip. And so when you put the comic strip on gold, when you put the letters out, it, 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 there's an eyeball, there's a man harvesting supply, And there's a house or a house of God. So when an ancient Hebrew person read this, they would have read, behold, the one who brings a substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. So when you start putting this all together, it starts sounding something like this. There's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering because behold, the one who brings a substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. And now there's one more thing to it. It makes a delineation. It says that the gold was perfect. Now, I've actually seen this with my own two eyes. If, if you take perfect gold and you put it into water, it makes a colloidal suspension. It takes one part gold to 100,000 parts of water to turn the whole thing blood red. It's how they make stained glass. I had a scientist in Perth do it for me one time. I had it in a little vial. He just made a colloidal suspension, a few nanoparticles of perfect gold. In that little bit of water, it turned the whole, it looked like a blood sample. It looked like, um, I, I used to carry it around with me till it exploded on a plane one time. It, if I was gonna be preaching this, people would go, why are you carrying your blood sample around? It was, it was that deep, dark, red color. So, so when you put all this together, this is what it would say. There's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering because behold, the one who brings a substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. So in Hebrew literary imagery, Anytime water is turning red, you might be in the land of suffering now, but it's, hey, take heart, hope is flowing through the suffering. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, the issue isn't the crux getting the last word. It's there's always another part of story. It. it doesn't get the last word. There's hope even in that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there's hope. So anytime water, in in Hebrew literary, anytime water is turning red, it's it's saying, hey, these people are in suffering, but hope never leaves. Hope is on the way. Fast forward to Egypt. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I'm going to save them. Think through your Bible Sunday school teacher notes. think through the flannel graph. think through, think through those things. Think through the times where you memorize the plagues. Remember how does God get them out of Egypt? He sends 10 plagues. What was the first plague? All the water turns to blood. Well, to the Egyptians, that would have been a curse. But to the Hebrew people, there would have been a buzz in the camp. Hey, did you hear? All the water's turning to blood. We might be in the land of suffering now, but hope's fixing to flow. Moses then leads them out of Egypt into freedom by walking them through the red sea. Red water, hope flows through suffering. They get to the mountain and they make a gold cow. And Moses comes down, and he can't stand the fact that they've already made a gold cow to worship. And he loses the plot a bit, and he beats the gold cow into powder. And he makes them throw the gold into the water that's coming out of the rock. Well, if they take the gold and put it into the water coming out of the rock, what color would it become? Red. Hope flows through suffering. Hope flows through suffering. If you've ever given birth, this, this is The way it sort of works, I've never seen a birth. I only know what I know on the internet. And forgive me if it's, I know this is a caricature and more complex, but when a woman gives birth, her water breaks. When her water breaks, she enters into a time of labor, suffering. And two fluids mixed together in a time of labor, blood and water. So when blood and water come together, in the greatest suffering a woman might ever know, out comes a bundle of joy. That even in nature, when blood and water come together, hope's flowing in the middle of suffering. Uh, Fast forward to Jesus. He's a first century rabbi that got very popular. Um, We would know that he's the fullness of God in flesh. In their world, they were still trying to work all that out. And he's walking around. And, 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 And he's ministering to the oppressed and the sick and people who are under the boot of the military occupation in Rome. And think about it, his first miracle was what? He turns all the water into wine. What was his point? Was his point to provide adult beverages for the party? No, in their world, to take water and turning it red in the middle of an oppressed situation, these people would have thought, wait a minute, we're in the land of suffering, but hope is flowing. Fast forward to the cross. Years later, he's having a really bad day and he ends up on a cross in the middle of the night so that the popularity of his following couldn't stop it. So that by the time everybody got up from the Passover meal, they, they couldn't stop it. He was already up there. And he's, and, he's, and he's on the cross. And they don't want it to cross into Sabbath. Because the idea for the Romans was, let's keep the Jews calm and not rioting. That, that, that's the idea. And the scripture tells us that one of the Roman soldiers came up just to make sure Jesus was dead and he put a spear through his side. And the scripture writer said that out of his side came a steady flow of blood and water. Well, in Hebrew imagery, what does that mean? It means in the greatest suffering you can possibly imagine, at the foot of that is a river of hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. Once you understand these stories and these situations, and you start looking at Jesus through that lens, if you go back, and look at every use of the word salvation in the gospel and then, talk, and then separate out the ones that had nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins, but the freedom from oppression or, 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 or part of the forgiveness of sins was the freedom from oppression. Like, like, like there was this one time where there's this guy named Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus is up a tree, and Jesus stops the whole crowd and says, hey, I'm going to eat with you today. And Zacchaeus is so moved by the compassion of Jesus that he says, hey, here and now, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus says, that's it. Salvation has come to this house. That is unthinkable. No temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10, no sacrifice. How could Jesus call this guy saved without any of those rituals. Well, think about it. In the first century, what was the only way for Zacchaeus to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So when your job forbided you from entering into the ritual that brought the salvation, what do you do? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppression and he sees the man's heart change and he says, that's enough for me. Salvation has come to this house. There's this one time, There's this lady, and um, she's a prostitute. And Jesus goes and visits her. And it says that she is so moved by the compassion of Jesus that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And Jesus says, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. What? What? How? No, no altar call, no sinner's prayer, no Romans ten nine ten, 10, no temple visit, no sacrifice. How is Jesus pulling this off? Well, think about it. In the first century, what was the only way for her to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. So when your job forbided you from entrance into the only place the ritual was allowed, what other choice did you have? Jesus is circumventing the entire system of oppressive power. And he's saying, hey, I see that heart and we're gonna call that okay. This was Jesus not simply forgiving sins, but setting people free from the oppressive system of suffering that they found themselves under. There's this one time where there's a paralyzed guy. Once again, what's the only way for the paralyzed guy to be saved? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. And so his friends find out Jesus is in a full house and they lower him in from the roof of that house. And it says this, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. That is as in your face a confrontation to the system of oppression as you'll ever find. No temple ritual, no sacrifice, no altar call. This guy was struggling with his own faith. So Jesus found his friend's faith for him. And could you imagine living in that system of oppression Finally, someone giving you a glimmer of hope that salvation isn't just about going somewhere when we die. Salvation is about God's intent to set us free from the suffering and the oppression here, now, today to make sure that the misery and the struggle and the suffering never, ever, ever get the last word for Christ gets the last word. There's this one time when Jesus is on a cross And uh, the guy next to him is having an equally bad day. It's not like crucifixion would have hurt less for him. And he can't breathe. And um, he only manages to get three words out of his mouth. Please remember me. And Jesus is like, that's it. That's it. Today. Today is your day. What? No temple ritual, no sacrifice. Jesus, even in his dying breath, is confronting the corrupt system of oppressive power that put other people and their rituals and their profiteering in charge of what God says about a person. I mean, in the first century, the only way for that guy to be saved would be to get off the cross, run to the temple, find someone to do a ritual for him for free, then come back, get back up on the cross and die. No way, no way. Jesus says, no, we're not doing things like that anymore. Nope, nope. I am here to not just forgive you, but to set you free from everything that oppresses you. This is, this is why I came. To proclaim the kingdom of God is what he said in one place. To proclaim a new rule. Let me, let me put some language around that. To, to proclaim a new narrative. There's a new way the world is going to work, and I'm here to show the world what that looks like. That a God that sits on a throne and watches people suffer, that is not compelling. But a God that empties himself and chooses to identify with that suffering, that is the ultimate picture of of what God is like. So let's ask ourselves a few questions about this, about what's happening in me right now because of this. Um, one, what is driving you that you need deliverance from? Like I, I realized that if you're a follower of Christ and you're like, oh, I'm going to heaven. Okay, okay, amen. But like today, what's driving you that you need deliverance from? What is that slave driver? What's that thing you just can't seem to beat? The thought you just can't seem to expel. What, what is that? Let's say it this way. What are you doing to help free others from their slavery? Where are you actively involved in helping others with their own slavery? And thirdly, where do you need salvation for your house here now today? That we acknowledge and we embrace the someday element of salvation. Someday the Lion and the Lamb. Someday no more pain. Someday no more crying. Someday, someday. We acknowledge and we embrace that. But we also acknowledge and embrace that tomorrow God is at work bringing salvation to our world and to our house. Where do we need salvation to come to our house today? Because what you find in the narrative scripture is that from Genesis one, God does not back off the disorder, he engages it. God does not back off the chaos, he engages it. Not to judge it, but to bring new life, new creation, new order, new, new, new chances, fresh starts, mulligans and the opportunity to write A better story. This is the problem with statements like, oh, God can't be in the presence of sin. And look, I know what you mean when you say that, but but actually the narrative of Scripture seems to indicate that when God is encountering darkness, he doesn't run from it. He engages it, brings light to it. He doesn't run from the chaos. He engages it to bring new creation. He doesn't run from the disorder. He engages it to bring new creation. And when we look at the cross and resurrection, in the cross, what we find is the ultimate picture of that, A God who empties himself and identifies himself with the suffering of humanity, even to the point of death on the cross. And and he does that so profoundly that he's not running from the darkness. He's not running from the brokenness. He's engaging it, not to judge it or condemn it, but to fix it. The word for that is salvation. So, my brothers and sisters, may we embrace that side of the cross and may salvation come to your house today. Grace and peace, everybody.